Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're continuing along in this lengthy study entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. Uh, notes and recordings for all of these, of course, are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And we are now in part six, entitled Conquering the Seven Nations. And we've come to the fifth of those seven nations, the Girgashites, which we began to look at last time. We want to continue from there tonight. If you are using the outline notes, uh, we're somewhere around page 121-122 in the notes. Let me give a brief review of what we looked at last week. The Girgashites are one of the seven nations listed in Deuteronomy 7, and they're a rather obscure nation, not mentioned very often, and not much is told us about this nation. And as we've been seeing, each one of these enemy nations represents a class of evil or darkness, some kind of sin that needs to be overcome. God has called us to be overcomers, but if there's nothing to overcome, you can't be an overcomer. So there are things that we must conquer, things that we must master in this life as a part of our journey into the promised land, the abundant life, the inheritance that God has promised us. And each nation is different. Sometimes we have some verses in the Old Testament that describe where they lived, what they did. Not much is given to us about this nation, the Girgashites. Uh, we're basing most of this section on the meaning of the name. The name means dwellers in clay soil, which I think is rather significant. And we saw last time that it obviously speaks about an earthly focus and emphasis on not just walking through clay soil, but dwelling in it. So the idea of being stuck in the mud, dwelling in the mud, comes to mind. And in English, even the word Gergeshite sounds kind of gushy or squishy, um, it just, it has a very unpleasant sound to it. And we talked quite a bit last time about the properties of clay soil. When it gets wet, it becomes very heavy, very sticky. It also becomes very slippery. And we put all of this together, uh, dwelling in the clay, being stuck in the mud, slipping and sliding on the clay soil, we put all of this together to represent this enemy nation as backsliding and slothfulness or laziness, being stuck in the mud, not really moving, not really going forward, but rather slipping and sliding back into the mud. And we have that term that we often use in English, a backslider. And it comes from the idea of sliding back into the mud of the old life. We saw how Peter used that in Second Peter chapter 2 to represent those who go back into their old way of life in, in sin and corruption and so forth. He even compares it to the pig who was once washed, who goes back to wallowing in the mud and the mire once again. What we want to look at tonight is how to overcome this spirit. We looked at many, many verses, particularly in the book of Proverbs, that also address the aspect of laziness, 
or slothfulness. And we saw that God actually uses two animals, uh, the slug and the sloth, to represent this kind of a spirit of laziness, just being slow and stuck and not really being motivated, not really being able to move forward. The slug and the sloth both being examples of that. Now, I want to look at four main areas in the Word of God that give us some help on how to overcome backsliding and slothfulness, how to prevent this dwelling in clay uh, to be a part of our experience. And I've added a number of verses since I wrote the notes for this outline, so you may want to jot some notes down, even if you do have the outline, because a lot of these verses will not be in there. Uh, some of them will, some new ones that will also not be there. All right, here we go. How to overcome backsliding and slothfulness. Number one. We must continually, and I want to emphasize the word continually, it doesn't matter where you and I were a week ago or even yesterday, this must be a daily thing. We must seek God continually for a heavenly vision and a heavenly hope because our natural tendency is to get stuck back in the mud, to get back with our focus on earthly things, because after all, we are physical, material beings. We do have a soul and a spirit, but we also have a body, and we are in the world. We're not supposed to be of it, but we are in the world, and we rub shoulders with the world every day, and it's very easy to lose that heavenly perspective and start looking down again at earthly things. So we must seek God, ask God, pray and spend time in the Word to keep renewing that heavenly hope, that heavenly vision in our hearts. And we could list many verses here. I'm just going to look at two passages, which I think will be sufficient for you to get the idea here. The first one is found in Colossians chapter 3, from verse 1 to 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice, this must be something that we are very deliberate about. He says, set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. Not on the clay, but on things above. And I have to tell you that even after 41 years, um, hopefully... You know, by that time, you know the difference between earthly and heavenly things, but it is still a day-to-day -day discipline where you have to set your mind. You have to remind yourself, wait a minute, there's more to life than this earth. There's more to life than material stuff, houses, jobs, cars, food, etc. I have to set my mind on things above. I have to deliberately shift my focus away from the earth and look upward, set my heart on things above where Christ is seated, 
set my mind on things above, not on earthly things. And I, I like that idea of setting or fixing your mind on something. You're kind of locking in on the heavenly vision so that you're not going to be drawn back into the clay, back into the things of this earth. And we'll see a little bit later on that the Christian life really is a lot like a race. And I don't know if you've ever noticed the race horses, the races, the, the horses that run in these races, they have around their heads uh, something called blinders. It actually prevents them from looking to the side or from looking backward. All they want to do is look forward, look toward the finish line. They don't want to be able to see the horses on their right or their left, and you would never see a racehorse in the middle of the race turning his head around to see what's behind him. He just points his head straight forward and races to the finish line. And we have to kind of have those spiritual blinders on. Just set your mind on the prize, on the finish line, which is in heaven, not on this earth. Okay? Second verse here, Second Corinthians 4, we'll read from verse 17 into chapter 5, verse 2. <clears throat> Paul says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Notice in both of these passages, when you have your mind, your eyes, your heart, your focus set on things above, you have a hope. You have a hope beyond this earthly existence. You have a hope beyond this life. And when you have that perspective things change. When you have a heavenly perspective, suddenly the trials, the troubles, the challenges of this life, they become light and momentary. Notice that in verse 17, our light and momentary troubles. Well, in reality, there, there may be many years of troubles, but compared to eternity, compared to the eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for us in the kingdom of God, these troubles down here on earth, be they 50, 60, 70, 80 years, they're light and momentary in comparison with the weight of glory that is being prepared for us in the heavenly kingdom. Notice again, the word used here, fix. We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. It's again, a deliberate action. I choose to look away from earth, look away from temporal things, and lock my vision in on that which is eternal. The problem is, with your natural eyes, you can only see temporal things. Notice that. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen, in other words, visible to the physical vision, that's temporary. But what is unseen, it's invisible 
to the natural eyes can be seen only by faith and through spiritual eyes, that is eternal. So we must ask God to give us that spiritual vision. A prayer I pray all the time. Ephesians 1, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I can know Christ better. Open up my eyes so I can know what is the hope of my calling. What is it that you've really called me for? Is it just for this earth? No. Paul says, if our only hope is in this life, we are of all men most miserable. So, this first point is extremely important. Many other verses come to mind, but we don't need to look them all up. But ask God <clears throat> to give you a heavenly vision. And then every morning, every single day, set your mind on things above. Fix your eyes, not on the temporary, but fix your vision on that which is eternal. And this will be tested. It'll be tested every day. People around you, uh, the commercials on the radio or the television or on the magazine or the television, all those things are going to be bombarding you day and night saying, go for earthly things. Get a better car. You need a new suit. You should be making more money. You need a bigger house. You need to be like the Joneses. Whenever those pressures and those temptations come, we need to deliberately fix our eyes on the unseen. Say, no, all that junk is going to pass away. I am preparing for a heavenly home. I am preparing for eternal life in the kingdom of God, where there's no more moth, there's no more rust, there are no more thieves, there's no more dying, there's no more curse, there's no more darkness, there's no more sickness. That's my hope. And we keep fixing our minds, our attention, our affections, our thoughts on those things above, not on things of this earth. Otherwise, we're going to slide back into the mud. We're going to be like the Israelites longing to go back to Egypt. Oh, we had a much better life in Egypt. We had the leeks and the onions and the melons. What a great life we had in Egypt. How deluded you can become if you're not careful. They had no life in Egypt. They were slaves for 400 years. And yet, their whole perspective got so twisted around, they wanted to go back into Egypt, back into bondage. And that's exactly what Peter wrote in Second Peter 2. Having been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ, the backslider goes back into bondage, back into corruption, and his end is worse off than he was before he even became a Christian. That's a pretty bad state to be in. Such is the backslider who ends up back in the miry clay, rather than being delivered out of it. The second point we want to look at, and this might sound a little funny, and I'm going to have to explain it, uh, go to the ant. And we read that passage in Proverbs. We're going to look at it again. What do I mean by that? Go to the ant. I think what it means is follow examples, not just of creatures. The ant is a good creature to look at. But follow the examples of diligent people who have persevered in life. I think that's what Proverbs 6 is talking about, um, and it's addressed to lazy people. If you have a tendency to be lazy, to lose your motivation, um, Solomon says, go study 
the ants. They will inspire you. They're hardworking. Let's read about it. Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. There are a couple of things that Solomon says you should learn from the ant. First of all, the ant doesn't have a boss. No one is telling him to go to work. No one is bossing him or ordering him around. He seems to have some intrinsic, innate, built-in motivation to work hard. No one has to tell him to do it. Notice that, verse 7. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler. Yet, and I'm adding some of these words here, he seems to understand the times. He knows the difference between summer, fall, and winter. And so when it's summer, the ant knows got to work overtime now because fall and winter are going to follow the summer. So, he stores provisions in summer, gathers food at harvest. Why? Preparing for winter when there is no harvest, when there is no food to be gathered in. What does the sluggard do? He sleeps right through summer. He sleeps right through harvest time. And then in the middle of the winter, he's hungry. And he's wondering why he doesn't have any provisions. So the wisdom of the ant is understand the times and the seasons and work hard now. When there's food, when there's plenty, when there's a harvest to be gathered in, doesn't need somebody telling him to go out and do it. He's motivated from within. He goes out and works hard. Has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, yet stores provisions in summer, gathers food at harvest. And notice the end for the sluggard, after all of his sleep and laziness, Verse 11, poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. So, literally, Solomon is saying, go study these creatures. Go look at their example. Consider what they're doing and be wise. You know, every one of us hopefully sooner rather than later, we come to a place in our lives where we don't need other people telling us what to do. We have a motivation coming from within. And one of the things that God promises through the new covenant is to put his spirit within us and motivate us, move us to walk in his ways. The whole emphasis in the new covenant, is it comes from within you. You don't need the pastor yelling and screaming at you every Sunday to get up, stop being lazy, go out and work and do something for the Lord. If you're listening to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is stirring you up. The Holy Spirit wakes you up in the morning and says, come on, pray, read your Bible, get out there, do some work for the kingdom. It, it, it doesn't need a commander, or an overseer, or a ruler. 
And my experience is when you have to keep bossing someone and you have to keep browbeating them and threatening them, uh, in the end, it's not going to go well anyway. So we have to come to a place where we are self-motivated. And I also teach high school. And I, I tell my students all the time, our goal as teachers is to bring you to a place where you are self-motivated. You are self-controlled. You don't need a parent cracking a whip. You don't need a teacher cracking a whip. You do your work because you want to do it. You're motivated to read, study, prepare, do well at whatever you're doing just because you have that motivation within you. And again, my experience even as a school teacher is when you have a lazy student and you have to keep, you know, cracking the whip and saying, come on, Johnny, do your homework, do your reading, in the end, they really don't do very well unless that switch gets turned on and they themselves are motivated. They want to learn. They want to work. They want to do well. That's the way God designed for life to be. We should be motivated from within to do what is right and to do whatever it is that God is calling us to do. That's the heart of the new covenant. God will write his law on our hearts, put it in our mind, and then fill us with his spirit and move us, motivate us from inside to keep his laws and his commandments. Okay, a couple of other passages from Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 22 verse 29. Here again, it's telling us, look at examples around you of diligent people, hardworking people, people who are motivated so that you can follow their example. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. I'm reading from the King James. It says, seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. Do you see a diligent man or woman? By the way, this word diligent in the Hebrew is interesting. It means quick, in a hurry, or ready. Interesting. The opposite of lazy, for sure. Quick, in a hurry, ready. In other words, no procrastinating, no, oh, I'm thinking about whether I want to do that work or not. Let me think about it for the first half of the day, and then I'll decide whether I'm going to do anything or not. No, a diligent person is quick. They see something, they act. The, the Bible says, if, if your hand finds something to do, do it with all your might. Don't sit around and think about it a couple days or weeks or months. If there's a job that needs to be done, do it quickly. Do it in a hurry. Be ready to act. That's what's behind this word diligent. So, what the proverb is saying, if you see someone with that quality of diligence, do you see someone diligent in his business? He will stand before kings, not before mean men. In other words, that young man or that woman is going places in life. Diligent people get promoted. And, you know, this sounds a little bit old-fashioned, but hard-working people do get promoted. They do find themselves moving up the business ladder. They don't have to use manipulation. They don't have to lie and cheat and do crooked things. If you are honestly diligent and hardworking, God will reward you. Your boss may not. The boss may not even see it. But if you 
Trust in the Lord. Promotion comes from the Lord, the Bible says. And it's sad, but in our day and age, hard work has become sort of an old-fashioned thing. Well, it still works. Do you see somebody diligent in his business? That person is going places. He will stand before kings. Look also in Proverbs 10. We also need to look at the bad examples. Do you see somebody lazy? Look at where it gets them. Look at the poverty that comes upon their life. Proverbs 10, verses 4 and 5. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Okay, the opposite of the ant. The ant is busy during harvest time. This points to a lazy spirit where the harvest is waiting and we're sleeping during the harvest. All right, let's look at some New Testament scriptures. This one is found in your notes, and then I want to take you to a couple of other passages that are not listed here. Hebrews 6, from verse 10 to 13. Says God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence. There's the word again. This same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now, this passage starts off saying, God is not unjust. In other words, God is not unfair. He's a very just, a very fair God. And he sees everything. Maybe no one else notices the hard work that you and I do. So what? We're not doing it for man, we're doing it for the Lord. And God will not forget your work. I like that. I've done a lot of work in my lifetime that I don't think anybody knows about, and I really don't care. I'm doing it for the Lord's reward, not for man's. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Then he says, we want each of you to have this same diligence. Be diligent in your work. Don't worry about whether the boss is noticing you. Don't worry about whether the pastor pats you on the back or not. You're not always going to get a pat on the back. We try to pat people on the back when we see them doing a good work, but we don't always notice it. A lot of things that people do go unnoticed, but not unnoticed by God. We want each of you to show this same diligence, not just for a day or a week or a month, to the very end. Be diligent to the very end, so that what you hope for, there's that word, hope. We talked about this earlier. We need to have a hope, a vision. The reason we're doing this hard work is because of a hope that we have, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Then he hits the nail on the head in verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy. No room for lazy people 
in the kingdom of God. No room for lazy people in the church. And there's a physical laziness, but there's also a spiritual laziness where we just kind of decide, you know, I'm going to coast. I'm going to take it easy. I'm not going to really put forth much. I'm just going to see, you know, what I can get out of this. I'm not going to invest very much. I don't really want to work up a sweat, so I'm, I'm going to take it easy. He says, we do not want you to become lazy, <clears throat> but to imitate those. Remember, go to the ant. Look at examples around you of diligent people, people who work hard for the Lord. We don't want you to become lazy, but, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. You know, in, in just about every church, you're going to have examples of both. You might have a lazy one, and you might have a diligent one. Basically, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, fix your eyes on the diligent one. Copy him. Imitate him. You see somebody that's really working for the Lord, aspire to that same spirit. Don't worry about the lazy one. Don't get into this, yeah, but he's not doing anything, she's not doing anything, so what? You do something for the Lord, and God will reward you. Now, I want to take you just to some scriptures that are not found in the outline, but I think they're quite appropriate to this section, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're still talking about this whole idea of following examples of diligent people, diligent people who have persevered in life. Maybe they're characters in the Bible, or maybe modern day people in your church or in your circle of friends. I think it applies to both. But notice how Paul uh, used this in his own life. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. He says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Wow. That's a bold statement. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I can remember occasionally my dad doing something that he didn't want me to imitate, and he would say, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> well, inevitably a kid is going to want to do whatever he sees his dad doing. So if dad is sipping a little bit of beer the kid's going to sip a little bit of beer. If dad's smoking a cigarette, it's highly likely that the kid's going to want to experiment with smoking also. Paul knew that. And so he said, I'm following Christ. I am really following the example of Christ, so you follow me. You're going to see modeled in my life um, what it means to follow Christ. Very bold statement. Now, go forward in 1 Corinthians a few chapters to 1 Corinthians 15. And let's look specifically at Paul's work ethic. Was he hardworking or was he lazy? If he was lazy, it'd be very difficult for him to tell the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow Christ. Conversely, if he was a hard worker, diligent, persevering, putting all of his effort into following the Lord, then yes, he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, let's look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. He says, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now we need to pause here because there's a very important concept here that I think is largely confused and misunderstood in Christian circles. Grace is often presented as an excuse for laziness, inactivity, and even, God forbid, a sinful lifestyle. Well, you know, it's all by grace, Pastor. Well, Paul addresses that in the book of Romans. He says, God forbid that grace brings you to that conclusion that it's an excuse to go on living a carnal, selfish, sinful life. Grace is to have an effect on our life. I like the word effect in verse 10. He's talking about grace, but not a grace that doesn't have any effect on our behavior. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. What did grace do to Paul? Did it make him lazy, or did it make him hardworking? Well, the answer is clear. No, I worked harder than all of them, all the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And, you know, inevitably, when someone hears this teaching about how we should not be lazy, we should work for the Lord, we should work out our salvation, we should be diligent and busy in the things of God, inevitably somebody will say, no, 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 pastor, you're teaching legalism. It's all by grace. That's, that's a, an incorrect understanding of grace versus law or legalism. That has no bearing whatsoever here. We receive God's grace to transform us. We become new creations by the grace of God. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved unto good works. You find all that very clearly expressed in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Most people like to stop quoting at verse 9. For we are saved through uh, grace by faith, da-da-da-da-da, not by works. But then in verse 10 he says, But we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has foreordained, it literally says, he's prepared ahead of time for us to do. So God has work for you and me to do, and the grace of God will equip us and prepare us not to be lazy, but to work harder. Note those words, I worked harder, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So that was Paul's work ethic. He was hardworking because of the grace of God, and because of that, here's how he was able to finish off this chapter exhorting the believers in Corinth. Go to the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. After this whole discussion, he ends by saying, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, and here it comes, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul worked hard. He was able to exhort the people under his care, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. 
because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Look at one other passage similar to this, written by Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Apparently, in the Thessalonian church, they had a problem with some of the believers being lazy, idle, not doing much. And so Paul addresses that in his second letter. 2 Thessalonians 3, from verse 6 down to verse 13. He writes, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Notice those words. Follow our example. What was their example? We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model or an example for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. So, there were some in the Thessalonian church, as indicated in verse 6, there were some in the church there that were lazy. They were idle. They were kind of sitting around with their hands held out, looking for handouts, looking for so-called charity, when in actuality they could get up, go out, and find a job and earn their own bread to eat. And so he says, brothers, keep away from those who are idle and who do not live according to our teaching. And then he's, again, he points to his own example. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not lazy. We were not idle when we were with you. And Paul, he had the right as an apostle to expect support from them. I'm not going to go into all that tonight, but it's very clear in 1 Corinthians 9 and some other places. The, the worker, the Christian worker, is worthy of his hire. The church should take care of those who labor and minister in the church. But Paul refused to even use that right. He didn't go in there and say, okay, you all need to serve me, you all need to pay all my bills, take care of me because I'm an apostle. <clears throat> no, he says, we did not do that. We were not idle, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. He's not talking about just preaching and teaching. Paul also worked as a tent maker uh, when he needed to, to support himself. That's a very noble and an apostolic thing to do. And sometimes, you know, when I meet a pastor or a Christian leader who's also having to work a secular job, they feel like they need to sort of apologize for doing that. And I say, no way. What you're doing is noble. You don't want to be a burden 
to the church. So you're working a job and taking on the responsibility of the church. And what often happens is people like that are doing two full-time jobs. They're doing the ministry as a full-time job, and they're also making tents or whatever secular employment they have. They're also doing full-time to help pay so that they don't sit around idly with their hands held out waiting for a handout. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, here's why, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Second reason, we did this not because we do not have the right to such help. Paul had every right to be receiving support from these churches, but he says, we didn't do that in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. So, seeing Paul's example of hard work, it was to stir the believers in the church to do the same. And he says, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now, he's not talking about an elderly person, a disabled person, someone who physically cannot work. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a lazy person. And you know, the the statistics don't lie. In this country, there are millions of people who are on welfare. They're receiving all kinds of free goodies from the government, food stamps, etc., etc., when they could and pardon my French here, they could get off their butts and go out and find a job and earn their own living. But sadly, they would rather tax the whole society so that they can continue to fund their lazy lifestyle. And again, I'm not talking about people who are disabled, people who have uh, extenuating circumstances that prevent them from being able to work. But, you know, I see even these uh, panhandlers at the red lights and along the highway with their signs, homeless, please help me, they seem to be a lot more able than I am. They seem to be quite fit, and I'm wondering, why isn't this young man or this young woman out looking for a job instead of standing here in the middle of the road begging for so-called charity. Paul says if you're able to work and you don't work, then you shouldn't eat. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle, idle, lazy, slothful. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. And I'll tell you another thing I've learned in 41 years of ministry People who aren't busy, they get into trouble. <laughs> People who have a lot of idle time on their hands, they seem to get into a lot of mischief. They end up criticizing others. They end up gossiping. And, you know, there's a good cure for that. Get busy. Get really busy. And then you won't be a busy body. And even... Uh, some people, after they retire, they have too much idle time on their hands. Get out and do some volunteer work or something if you're idle. Keep your mind active. Stay busy. Help people. Go serve. Go volunteer in a, in a mission or in the hospital or somewhere. But stay busy because if not, you end up a busy body. And he says in verse 12, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. <clears throat> now, uh, we've got two more parts to this, and I want to save these for next time because they're rather lengthy, and I even added some other scripture to what's in the notes. I'll just 
uh, introduce you to the next uh, points three and four on how to overcome this spirit of laziness or backsliding. We saw number one, seek God for a heavenly hope, a heavenly vision. Fix your eyes on things above. Secondly, go to the ant. Follow examples of diligent, hard-working people, both in the Bible as well as in modern life. It may be in church. It may be, be outside of church. But look at examples of hard-working people that their example might inspire you. Thirdly, we're going to see next time, and this sort of ties back into what we were talking about with the ant, realize how short the time is. The ant somehow understands in summertime, I just have a little bit of time to work here. Fall and winter are coming when I can't gather any more food in. So I need to realize what the time is. And a key verse that we're going to look at that's not even in the notes, Jesus said, work while it is day, night time is coming when no one can work. So realize we just have a short time to work. We can't put it off till tomorrow because tomorrow may be too late. And again, whatever your hand finds to do, do it now. Do it diligently. Remember, diligent means quick, in a hurry. Be ready to do it now. And fourthly, we're going to talk about pressing on, making every effort to to win the prize, to cross the finish line. There is a reward at the end. And because of that reward, we need to run all the way to the end. Let's stop there, stop there, and we will complete these last two portions of our study next time. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, O God, for giving us examples, both in the scripture and even in our life, of individuals who are hardworking, they're diligent, They make an effort to seek you, to serve you, to do something for your kingdom. God, I pray that every one of us would be inspired to rise up and follow that example. God, give us a vision of the heavenly hope that we might run after heavenly rewards and not get stuck in the mud of this earthly life. Father... I pray for each and every one on the phone, those that are with us on the internet tonight, or who may be listening to this by recording in the future. Stir us up, O God, in the name of Jesus. Stir us up that we would not slide back, we would not get stuck in the mud of discouragement, despondency, laziness or inactivity. Stir us up, O God, to make every effort to run after you, to run the race that you've set before us. Lord, I thank you for opening the eyes of our understanding, giving us a clear vision of the hope that you have set before us, that we would give ourselves fully, as Paul said in Corinthians, give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. For when we labor for you, Lord, man may not see us, we may not get congratulated or patted on the back, but we saw that your eyes notice everything that we do. You're not unjust to forget all of the work, all of the labor that your children do for you. It will be rewarded in the end. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, but help us to keep pressing on to the mark, the goal, the finish line, because Jesus, when you return, your rewards are with you. And Lord, you're going to reward those who diligently seek you, 
who diligently serve you. Bless this word now to each one of our hearts. Keep every one of us under the precious blood of Jesus. Keep us filled, motivated by your Holy Spirit until that final day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.